Hello and welcome to the Pharma Forum podcast. I'm your host, Jonah Comstock. Today, I'm joined by Tony Mack, CEO at Verpax Pharmaceuticals, uh, and also a veteran of such pharma companies as Purdue and Novartis. We're going to talk a little bit about the opioid crisis and some of the technical solutions um, to moving past uh, opioids um, to a better uh, paradigm of pain management. Um, it's a obviously a super important topic, uh, one that has taken a bit of a backseat during the COVID crisis, but remains uh, extremely important to a lot of people in the United States and around the world. Welcome to the show, Tony. Thank you. Thank you. Glad for glad to be here. So tell me a little bit about yourself and and uh, and how you ended up uh, where you are with with Verpax. Uh, yeah. So I've been in this space for around uh, 25 years and before that, it was 10 years in the financial space. I was actually a stockbroker at one point. Um, so I got into this space, really, my first career job in the pharmaceutical space was with a group called Sandoz Pharmaceuticals. I've graduated through there, through a number of different companies. You've named um, a couple of them. Uh, and I started my first company called ProSolus, which is an R&D and manufacturing facility. Uh, it's still around in Miami, Florida. Uh, second company after selling that company was Silex Pharmaceuticals. Uh, where we developed and took to market a, a, a product called ZT Lido. Uh, that product was, uh, that company was sold to a group called um, Sorrento Therapeutics. And uh, then we started Verpax Pharmaceuticals with the idea of bringing in platforms that could take actives that were already approved actives, make them work more efficiently, and um, also newly developed uh, actives. Uh, in the pain management that couldn't normally work the way they work, but definitely look like they work in our platforms, at least in our preclinical studies. That is quite a quite a long background. Um, so this is your second pharma company that you founded. Yeah, this is the third. This is the third. Prosolis, Silex, and then uh, Verpax. So third one. Wow. Yeah. So so tell me about this one. What what was the impetus here, and um and what is it you guys work on at Verpax? So what we work on are really pain products that are non-addictive products, and we also work on CNS products as well. Uh, we have three different platforms that we use to, to uh, get these products to their desired place or their targeted area. One is a spray film technology that delivers diclofenac to the knee for osteoarthritis and knee pain. A second is a liposomal, I say hydrogel, I'll explain that um, later on if you want, but it's a product that works for post-operative pain. So it uses bupivacaine, it goes into the area of the knee via a syringe with the surgeon, and it, uh, in the animal studies, it's delivered pain control for 96 hours uh, without any opioids involved in it. Uh, the, um, the third one is a nose-to-brain technology where we deliver enkephalin. Enkephalin is a peptide. It's an endogenous material already in our bodies. It attaches to what's called the delta receptors in the brain. They're noted for not having the same side effects as morphine. And our animal models so far, we've been able to treat, in this case, animals that are rats, and they haven't had any predisposition for drug-seeking behavior, tolerance, or respiratory depression. That last asset, we also um, won a CRADA, uh, cooperation agreement with the NIH. Um, and that product is actually being developed in the preclinical studies by that NCATS group well, through the NIH. Wow. 
So let's back up a little bit and talk about opioids. Um, and then we can talk about how some of the stuff you're working on is is um, is a response to that. So when, when it comes to the opioid epidemic situation we're in today, what went wrong? Uh, was it the drugs themselves um, or or was it, you know, lack of control over prescribing, bad, bad acting by the pharma companies uh, or combination? Yeah, I think it's a, I think it's a, it's definitely a combination. I, I call it the. Um, the perfect storm. And I, I want everybody to know that I'm not a physician. Um, I'm just an absorber, observer like everyone else in this crisis. I happen to be in involved in uh, in training um, uh, these products and, and in marketing some of the opioids and non-opioid products. And I think it was a bit of the perfect storm <clears throat> where you had uh, chronic pain, patients suffering from pain. Um, you, you didn't have um, seriousness of, t- of treating these pain patients. So um, I think uh, that played into it. Pain became a fifth vital sign at one point, right? So now physicians and everybody wants to get, they, they have to get trained on pain management. So I think uh, pain being as complicated as it is, it is not something that can be, they all can't be treated the same way. So if you have chronic pain, it's different from being treated for, you know, acute pain or post-operative pain. If you're a chronic pain patient and you go in for surgery, you're going to have much more uh, complicated way of getting you your pain under control. First of all, you have chronic pain. Now you go in for surgery, you have more pain on top of that. So there has to be some type of dosing regimen where you're checking on those patients to make sure that their pain, pain is treated adequately. But at the same time, you're making sure that you're not giving them too much opioid. So it's very complex as far as that concerned. There's no one way to treat pain. And I think that that sometimes come to mind when you got a cancer pain patient, right? They're going to be treated differently. You have uh, patients that have visceral pain. You have patients that have somatic pain. And when I say visceral pain, I'm, I'm talking about, you know, that kind of pain that is organ pain. When I say somatic pain, I'm talking about that kind of pain that's either tissue or, or some type of bone pain, right? Patients that are, are, are cancer pain patients, their pain is going to be progressive, Chronic pain patients could be progressive as well. Maybe it could come down, but if, as the pain increases, you're going to need more of something. Sometimes opioids are used right away. Sometimes they're not used right away. Sometimes if it's nerve pain, tricyclic antidepressants are used first. Um, so it, it's, a, it's a complicated way to, um, to make sure a patient's pain gets managed. And you need doctors, I think, and, and nurses, especially nurse practitioners, that are trained in the area of pain, whether they've done fellowships in that area or something that um, would, would give them the type of experience that they need to make sure that they're properly diagnosing the patients. So opioids are, are addictive, and that's a, a big part of the problem here. Um, but my understanding is the same things that makes them effective at treating pain, the, the, you know, the way that they uh, interact with the brain is also what, what makes them addictive. So what does it look like to develop a, a solution for pain that doesn't have that side effect that isn't, doesn't have that potential for abuse? Yeah. It and and, and uh, it, it's, it's, you don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater now because um, pain in and of itself, as long as the opioid, as I said, doesn't take you out of that therapeutic area. If you're, if you're at a level where you need your pain managed, the opioid can meet that level. Once it goes over that, then you go into what you call that euphoria. Mm. That's where you have the problem. If you have pain and your, your treatment is giving you much more dose than you need to treat that pain, you're going to have euphoria. Hence, if you're predisposed to having an addiction issue, you're going to have it. 
Now, there are other products out there that can help you mitigate that. Um, for instance, if you have, you know, osteoarthritis in the knee and you can get a product, ideally, that is an inset that can go to the knee and stay at the site of the knee for a 24-hour period. That's how we formulated our product. You will have to use less maybe adjuvant products like an opioid. When you're talking about post-operative pain, we have a product called Probidor that we have in development. It has been able to hang at the womb site or the tissue site for 96 hours. And that's because of the hydrogel delivery system. It allows the liposomes to sit at the womb site for that 96-hour period. If we can manage that and demonstrate that we're using significantly less opioid or zero opioid, that is a solution to post-operative pain patients. Now, in the case of the nose-to-brain technology with the encephalin, as I said, so far those studies have demonstrated that there has been no respiratory depression, drug-seeking behavior, and drug tolerance. Now, of course, we're going to test that in humans, but this product does not attach to the mu receptor agonists like your morphines, your hydrocodones, and your oxycodones. It attaches to what's called the delta receptor agonist, which does not come with those types of side effects. Now, enkephalins have been around for a long time. It's nothing new, but getting it to the brain is new. And getting it to the brain without it uh, biodegrading is new. We do that with our molecular envelope technology. That molecular envelope technology, when delivered with the encephalin through the nose, has protected the encephalin from biodegrading long enough for it to attach to those delta receptors. And hence why we got the grant that we have with the NIH and why we think these are very promising studies in the area of, of severe pain treatment. Let's talk a little bit about the, the hydrogel, because um, that did, did pique my interest. Um, <laughs> I, I've heard of it in the context of uh, over-the-counter burn treatments. Um, is this the same kind of thing? or? Good question. Good question. So this is not viscous or thick, right? It's part of the formulation, but I'm glad you set, I set you up for that one, uh, in that we're using the same type syringe that we use to deliver febipivacaine. But those hydrogel and what it's there for is to prevent the hydrogel from moving away from the womb site. So when we inject it into the womb, it doesn't turn viscous or thick until it reaches the flush. Once it touches the flush, it turns viscous and thick and it keeps the liposomes from moving so that when it opens up is allowed to deliver the bupivacaine. In this case, we've done it over a 96 hour period. We've demonstrated that. But there is one catch to this formulation. Is biphasic. So around that liposome, we have free bupivacaine. So the surgeon doesn't have to inject free bupivacaine with the liposomal delivery to get onset. It's already in the formulation. So once it's injected in the womb site, they get the free bupivacaine, and then they get that duration that they need to have with activity at the womb site. And that's key. We just don't last 96 hours. We're actually giving pain control in our head-to-head studies versus our comparators, which would be free bupivacaine and the long-acting product that has been approved already. So it seems like one of the big keys here is delivery mechanism, right? And being able to parcel out the pain medication in response to the pain to avoid that kind of over-medicating that leads, can lead to the addiction. You right? are hit it right on the head. Targeted delivery is going to be the future 
of delivering products, especially to treat pain, but that goes for all pain medications, all different types of products, whether it be CNS. We do have a CNS delivery as well, where we deliver the CNS product directly to the brain. By doing that, you avoid that first pass effect going through the liver. doesn't have to go through the plasma, right, with our MET, our MET, our, our MET delivery products, our molecular envelope technology that delivers encephalin, products called Invelta. Um, so by having that, you avoid some of those side effects that are associated with drug-drug interactions or products that have to go through the plasma. In the case of the liposomal asset, we want it at the knee for as long as we can get it there, right, um, or at the womb site for as long as we can get it there. So if it's 96 hours, if it's longer, that's great. As long as we can avoid or minimize opioid use, that's the key. And keeping that product at the site is critical because we know it works. We know it works. We know when we get free bifidocaine, it works because it works for six hours, but it starts to taper off after six hours. We know that the long-acting product out there works right now, right? But doesn't work long enough. You have to use an opioid as an adjuvant at some point during the surgery case. In this case, we've demonstrated in head-to-head studies that we at least last longer in our animal models. We'll find out when we go to our, our, our human trials. Yeah, that's so interesting. That just, I mean, even getting even more basic about pain, right? It's a, it's our body's way of telling us that something's wrong, right? So it makes sense that when you find a way to shut it off, the body responds to turn it back on after a while because it still sees something as being wrong, right? That's critical. That's critical. That's absolutely right. I mean, the, the number one reason why we go to the hospital or see the doctor is due to pain. And pain is telling us something. Uh, most of the time, we, we, we ignore it as long as we can, right? We go to over-the-counter medications, but at some point, we see the physician. And, and this is critical, too, in the area of treating pain. You know, a physician or patient diaries, right, where they can tell the doctor what's going on during that month or so that they're away from the doctor. So they can say, hey, this kind of activity caused me to have this kind of pain. When I did this, it caused my pain to increase because, you know, the doctor has to know what's going on with the patient and how they can treat them. At the same time, they say, well, I don't need as much during that time, too. So there's a, there's a lot to do with this. And I think what happens is we probably looked at pain as though, you know, in the past prescribed two Percocets every five to six hours, right? That's it. Or five, five, three, or get this, get the. But I think it's much more complex than that. And that's how come I said at the beginning, you need physicians that understand it, that understand, you know, what the patient's history is, that understands what the patient is doing. Maybe they can't rock climb anymore. That's it. You can't do it. Dude, this is it. This is all you can do. You can't do certain activities and you need to be honest with the patient that some activities they're not going to be able to do because of their condition at this point. So because of that, here's where you're going to be. If you go over that, you take that risk. So I think those are some of the things that um, they can be honest with their patients about and, and, and helping them understand that they may not ever get to the point where they can do some of the things that they've done before. But, you know, going to the grocery store, driving your car, going to sleep at night, we're going to help you to get to those kind of things. Has everything that's happened with opioids been a wake-up call for either the healthcare providers and or the pharma industries about a need to kind of change and do things differently? And and if so, how, how is that manifesting itself? I mean, are you finding there's a real big demand for the kind of stuff you're working on? Yeah, I think there is. I think physicians want another, you know, a tool in the toolbox, so to speak, that they can go to um, to help patients manage their pain and not have the addiction issues that they have. 
And, and, and I think physicians have done a good job of making sure that they do that with the existing products that they have, where they're doing some of the things that I've talked about. Uh, the nurses and the uh, physicians are doing that. I think what now people are seeing is a misuse of inappropriate medications, <laughs> like the illicit fentanyl products that are out there mm-hmm. right now. And so now we see another elevation that pharma, physicians, and, you know, and, and clinicians, right, they, they, they can't get a handle on, right, because this is something that's beyond what they can do. But I think for the most part, um, you probably see an overreaction by physicians <laughs> um, and clinicians, right, and prescribing opioids because they don't want to be, they don't want their name in the paper about prescribing or being a pill mill at some point. Uh, so you see an opposite effect where maybe some patients aren't being treated the way they should be treated as far as pain management is concerned. Mm. So again, I go back to what I said when they were overprescribing. You need physicians that understand or clinicians that understand pain management and how to treat these patients. A lot of them have done fellowships in pain or have done some extracurricular activity in pain so that they understand it. Doctors that don't understand it shouldn't be afraid to send their patients to those doctors and those patients come back and then they can fill the script. If something changes in their life, that's like I might say having a diary is important. Then that physician who doesn't have that particular area in pain or nurse, they need to send them back to that doctor again, have them reassess and then come back. I'm not saying that's a panacea, but it's going to be a good start uh, to helping us to control at least the prescription type products that are addictive. Hmm. So better drugs, which is essentially what you're working on, um, is only part of the part of the solution. I think it's only part of the solution. It's not it's no we're not going to be the panacea. We like to be. We like to put ourselves up like that. But we're giving the doctors alternatives. We're giving them something that we can help to work better. We're giving them something that hasn't worked before, but now it can work. Um, and it's giving the doctors something else that they can use. But they're still going to have to do some of the same things I said before. They're going to have to go back, reassess these patients when they need to be reassessed, and understand their pain when they come in the door. Understand whether it's nerve pain, whether it's somatic pain. What are they giving them? What kind of regimen do they have as far as that's concerned? And, and, um, and, and then when it's out of their wheelhouse, send it to somebody who understands it. Send it to a, a clinician that really understands how to treat pain. They're, they're not, you know, they're out there. Now, one is on my board and one is actually a partner with me. And that's Dr. Jeff Gooden, board certified anesthesiologist in pain and addiction medicine. Uh, we're coming to the end of our, of our time here, but I want to just ask, you know, back to you and, and what you're working on at Verpax. How far along is some of this stuff? Uh, is it, is it in patient stands now? Are you in trials? We're still, we're, we're still in trials. We're still in trials now. We're still preclinical, uh, getting through some of the uh, preclinical studies, We'll likely have at least three products with INDs filed sometime in 2022. And we'll be in the clinic in our first in human trials, at least two or three products in 2023. Great. So moving in a preclinical book, but moving right along and, and promising so far. Very, very promising. We've had DOD uh, where we won a, a cooperation agreement with the DOD with our Probidor asset. So we're advancing the product through some non-dilutive funding strategies. And as I talked to you about earlier, the NIH with the encephalin asset, that's the nose to brain encephalin. 
Great. You guys based in the U.S.? We are. We're right here in good old PA in Berwyn, Pennsylvania. Uh, I do operate out of my home now because of what's all going on, but we do have an office in, in, in Berwyn, Pennsylvania, where we're there off and on sometimes. We'll get to... We'll get there more um, when we start advancing the product more. We'll we'll probably set up camp somewhere in Berwyn, PA. Got it. I just asked you. So you mentioned the DoD and the NIH. I wonder if you're if you have global aspirations beyond that. Oh, we we do have global rights to all of our assets, but as part of our strategy, we will sublicense the rights to those ex-U.S. territories. So uh, we do have some strategies in place where we're already talking to Europe as far as how to go through the European authorities. And um, eventually, we hope as we get the products through their um, clinicals, that we'll start to attract some partners, uh, partnering activities. That'll probably be after we file the INDs, though. Well, thanks so much for chatting with me. This has been super interesting. I uh, Who knew there was so much to pain management? It makes me feel hopeful um, about being able to move move forward past this uh, chapter in, in a history of pain management that has ironically caused so much pain. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Well, thanks so much. Um, hopefully, we'll chat again uh, when, uh, when you guys have an update. All right. Awesome. Thank you so much. That concludes this episode of the Pharma Forum podcast. You can find more information about this episode, including a download link and information about other installments in the series at pharmaforum.com slash podcast. The Pharma Forum podcast is also available on iTunes, Spotify, Acast, Stitcher, and Podme, where you can find and subscribe by searching for Pharma Forum. And don't forget to visit our website, where you can sign up for daily news and analysis bulletins, and to follow us on Twitter at at PharmaForum. Thanks for listening.